to me, the most important gradient is realizing there's no substitute for hard work. I found that you just have to roll up your sleeves and get your hands dirty. Today, for example, I was called by a, a venture capital firm, was asking if I felt that there was room in the market for a company on the low end. And it was a very simple question, but really to answer that question fully, there would be so much hard work ahead of them. And what I found is, is that no great achievements are possible or sustained without hard work. And, and hard work is the price you'll pay for the success that you desire to achieve. Just stop it. The run-of-the-mill cheesy humdrum bullshit status quo just tires me out. What fascinates me are the industry disruptors, the superhuman frontiersmen or women with errors in their backs who go through hell to achieve their goals. They'll go through anything to make it. They bathe in hell and high water, a cut above. They're intolerant to mediocrity, the status quo, and yet they're the nicest people you'll ever meet. This is Disruption Interruption. Join me as we meet and learn from those mavericks, rebels, and business leaders that aren't afraid to piss off the establishment in order to make radical change for good. This show is sponsored by Johto PR, the disruptive anti-PR firm that murders your competition with cinder blocks and cyanide. Welcome to another episode of Disruption Interruption. I'm your host, KJ, and today we will take a discriminating look at the world of branding, marketing, and sales in a world where innovative creativity is challenging the status quo. Software continues to present methods for sales and marketing leadership, but the fact remains that innovative marketers must rise above the noise of competition and differentiate their brand in order to achieve true success. Today, I've prepared a special treat for all of you. I've put together a highlight audio reel featuring key takeaways from some of our top guests in this competitive arena. By the end of this episode, you'll gain valuable insights into the disruptive minds of some of the keenest brand experts and marketers that have emerged today. So fasten your seatbelts, folks. Get ready to embark on a journey where we will explore, one, the reality that people will not change their thinking based on old news. A unique sound is needed for brands to be noticed. Two, the importance of being connected to the problems your customers are trying to solve. Three, repurposing and packing existing marketing content to transform your SaaS from a cost center to a value center. Four, disrupting the outlook of the 18-month average tenure for a sales VP in a SaaS company and how to turn that around. And for bonuses, increasing velocity with which customers move along the sales journey to equal more money and providing a no-commitment point of entry into your brand's product by being your client's consultant. Here we go. The first past episode that we are highlighting today was with David Breyer. David Breyer is the president and creative director at DBD International and has a knack for pulling things apart and getting to the root of an issue by asking a simple question. Why? But why? But why? <laughs> he asks this question to get down to the bottom of things. And David joins me 
to talk about ways that he's disrupting the status quo of rebranding companies. The biggest, most important ingredient to disruption. What is it? The biggest, most important ingredient to disruption, paying attention in the first place. How can you disrupt if you don't even take a pulse of where the things are at? And that to me is the biggest secret. So many companies, CEOs, brands, thought leaders, et cetera. It's like, they're just going to show up screaming really loud because they figure <laughs> screaming loud. Well, that's going to disrupt. Well, what about what everybody else is already screaming loud? Bozo, it would be my, my response to that, uh, that person who chose to do that. So it's paying attention first. It's going, okay, take a pulse. Where's stuff at? Right? Because you could disrupt smartly. You could disrupt stupidly. The status quo is build, build up your brand. And I'm going to say the status quo is <laughs> as, as, a, as a stupid, un, as a stupid, unquestioned uh, cliche, because I would say every day there's, a, there's a, another little stupidity that's grandfathered in just because everyone says it. You got to build your personal brand. Is that true? Sure it is. Does it mean, I mean, I see it, it, it literally shocks me. I ha, there's a, there's a couple, there's some people who are online. I'm just going to leave it very, very, very <laughs> neutral and anonymous who are okay. online. And I'm not talking about Kardashian caliber. I'm talking about folks that are business people, entrepreneurs, CEOs who think taking pictures of themselves where they basically look like sort of a hybrid between a Victoria's Secret uh, advertisement and Sex and the City, that somehow that that's branding and that's building a personal brand. You know what? Tits and ass, while nice, if that's what you want to be known for, is that going to get you the, the business that you, you know, what, what, what's that going to do? That's like, like there was someone who introduced me because I was recently I just completed a branding project for someone who's starting a podcast and the brand evolution we did is a, remarkable, but I had to kind of look into this world of branding. And of course you have the Joe Rogans of the world, you know, that cream of the crop, like upper crust. And then I was finding out, oh, well, and this, my client was telling me on oh, this woman, this woman is like, she's got an offer for like, I don't know, $60 million or I don't, I don't some, some crazy figure to because of her popularity. And I listened to her content. It is nothing more. It's like she swallowed 15 sailors and is now they're all talking through her. It is just F bombs, no quality, no virtues, no, no value added. It's like, oh, if you just want to hear someone just talk like an app, well, go to go to your local bar where people are known to get really drunk and just listen. You don't have to, you don't have to log on here. You can just do it for, you know, for no charge, be a fly on the wall. So that's, that's the stuff that I just find. Don't disrupt with the, if you're going to disrupt, you got to know why you're disrupting and you're disrupting because blending in is a lousy option because blending in means you don't have much value and you don't match up to have much distinction. It's not that what you're saying is untrue. It's not that what you're saying doesn't provide value, but it sounds and looks like everybody else. I carve it out so they really understand. You can have the most brilliant breakthrough, ingenious revolution and any industry has ever seen. But if you are talking the way everyone has been talking, and if you are walking the way everyone's been walking and you look and you smell and you taste just like everybody has, 
I mean, the one thing that I tell people all the time is that people will not come to new conclusions with old information. Ah, say that again. That is a mic drop. That that basically that your your customers, clients, prospects, they will not come to new conclusions based on old information. So if we're sounding like old information, people's attention spans are so fleeting. You know where I wish this would happen so much more is with tech companies. I mean, we obviously do a lot of work for tech companies, disruptive startups and so forth. And it is one of the biggest pain points that I find is that they want to sound like everyone else, but their technology is so disruptive. There's absolutely no way. How do you take something that's never been done before? And then you have to communicate it because the people judge things based on what they already know. So how do you, what is the disruption here? How much time do your salespeople have to spend to actually get people to understand that you're not just pretty much your own version of what they've already seen or heard five, 10 or 20 times previous with your competitors? How much time are you guys actually spending to have to do that? Where all the weight of differentiation is on the shoulders of every salesperson. And then when they go, hmm, and I say, how many times are you having to answer, why should we choose you? How many times are you having to answer, well, that sounds just like X, Y, Z over here. How are you different? How many times are you having to do that? And you realize every one of those things is basically, that is a red flag that you blew it. You didn't take ownership of your story. You didn't take ownership of your differentiation. You didn't take ownership of your narrative. You obviously had a point in your career where you said, I am done with this. The bullshit? Yeah. Um, I started to see, I, I guess it was a little evolution. I started to see that I was really good at pulling things apart. Right. So I was like, good at saying, like, like I would ask you, know, they would say something that they probably have said to five or 10 other people. And I would say, I'm just going to pause you right there. Why is that? Because I was very good at telling the difference between conclusions versus facts. Mm. You know, conclusions slash opinions versus facts. I was just very good at that. And so I would just go, all right, I just got a conclusion. I don't really give a shit about their conclusions. In fact, I actually will be honest. I say I freaking hate their freaking conclusions. They suck because they're stupid. So much, such a high percentage of the time they serve no one. So I'm like, now hold on a second. So they drop a little, little conclusion thing in the middle of it as though in the midst of a whole bunch of other facts. And I'm like, and I stop right there. I go, boom, hold on that. Why is that? And it pauses them and it makes them all of a sudden, no one has asked them to think they've been going on autopilot. They've been being allowed to go on autopilot. They've had people around them who haven't stopped them because they were going on autopilot because whatever reason, because they were the boss, because they were the rainmaker, because they were the top salesperson, because they were the blah, 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 because they were the, they were the son or daughter of X, Y, Z, who gives a shit. So I, I just was like, why? They all use different stuff to close a deal. They all use different stories to close a deal. I said, so in other words, in the eyes of the, of your customers, if I were to go to 10 of your customers right now, I would probably be hearing 10 different brands in the eyes of your customers. And they're like, yeah. And I said, that's a really fucked up place to be. You know, I said, I said, how that, how the hell are you going to have a narrative? How could you scale on a foundation of where, whatever you want us to be 
depending on who we're speaking to, be, you know, that literally leaves your salespeople have now become your policymakers for your company. Why? Because they're going to use the closing. They're going to use the line that closes the deal that gets them the commission. Is there a particular time that you just went against the grain in the industry, like your industry of branding? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I did a, about three, four months ago, I did my first live speaking gig in like 17 months, right? Just all the craziness. And so I said, guys, I said, I want to do the biggest lie in branding. I want to do it. I, I, want, I want to put the focus on the biggest lie in branding. Yeah. And what I told them was, I said, the biggest, I said, the biggest lie in branding is that these cookie cutter solutions, these templates and these specialists who are like us focused on a specific niche. Well, we have a food brand that we want to brand. So we should probably get like a food brand specialist. I said, well, um, yeah, that's one way to approach it. I said, but now if you understand that branding is the art of differentiation and not the art of looking like another brand in your category, and I let that sit for a second. So let that settle in, right? If you understand that branding is what? The art of differentiation and not the art of how do we blend in so we could be seen as one more ver option in the category that we're in. Who the hell wants to see us be seen as one, one more option? So at every point, I'm, do, I'm give, giving them a little thing to inspect and own. And then it's just, I, that's the thing that I, I love to do. I mean, it's, I, I would sooner ruffle someone's feathers with truth than, than massage their shoulders with oil of lie. How did you disrupt your own brand? I am a lifelong fan of music. So um, I love great, great music and I love, I just love terrific movies, you know, really great, great, great forms of entertainment, you know, whether in whatever form in whatever medium, but music, I was always, always a bit of music lover. And so uh, Joe Jackson, who uh, basically he, he came out of the punk era, you know, he was like the Brit, the angry Brit, you know, out of the punk era um, from probably the yeah, late 70s, early 80s. Um, I even ran into him. He was he was not he he he, he it was his, he oh, he had that chip on his shoulder in real life as just as much as he did in his did in, he really in his song yeah I mean because he's about he's like about six four I mean he's really freaking tall he's very skinny and tall and and it was like and I saw him and I was like oh my god and I was like I was like I was thinking of like stepping out you know I'm like thinking of the songs that I loved of his. And, and I stopped and he was talking with somebody and he, and he, and he obviously looked at me with a little bit of irritability. Like, can't you see I'm talking to someone It had that kind of vibe to it. I was like, Oh God, I said, I just wanted to say how much of a fan I am. Then I got the hell out of there anyway. But, um, but Joe Jackson had written a book or something like that about the cure of gravity. And I always thought, what a fabulous, I love the, the cure for gravity. I like thought, what a, what a brilliant concept because gravity is like thought of like, you who can contest gravity right i mean unless you go to another planet and you have different but it's like this it's this thing that it whatever it says we comply with right what you know if we jump up we're going to go down etc but i love the cure of gravity the cure for gravity and i thought what a cool concept so i got into the factor of like you know defying gravity and rising above the noise i so i started to make that my own and that kind of became like a a the foundation of, you know, anybody that knows me, you know, they might refer to me as the chief gravity defier, but defying gravity, but rising above the noise resonated with everyone. 
who the hell wants to add to it? That's what I always tell people. It's like, look, you have two choices. You're either adding to the noise or you're rising above the noise. What the hell do you want to do? So Carla Joe and I were talking and she's like, hey, David, I need a rebrand. I, you know, it's like, da, 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 I need, you know, and so we talk, 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 talk. All right, good. So we decide we're going to, we're going to do this together. And I'm always fascinated what I learn because at least 85% of the industries that I go into, I'm going into for the first time. So I'm having to learn. So I have the wonderful, I have the disadvantage of not knowing about it. So I'm having to learn really quickly, but, but I have the great advantage of having a completely impartial viewpoint. So That's I'm true. not, you know, so there, so, so I find that every, that every client, every client, their knowledge is a double-edged sword. One is it's great in that they, they can answer any question, but it's, bad because they're also blind to being seeing you know what's important what's not important to all these various things that so what happens is when you and i spoke and you and i and you were starting to share with me the insights and things that you were seeing i learned from you that pr firms were basically disliked because they provided smoke and mirrors they meaning that they over promised over inflated their deliverable underdelivered, and they almost always locked you into a 12 month contract. And, and it's practically, you could practically time it, you know, that you would have like in three or four months and, you know, at, at the point where the client's getting really frustrated, they drop you a little dribble, a, a breadcrumb and you, Oh, re- hope starts to be restored and maybe another little micro breadcrumb. And then it's like, and then they, then they, they turn into vapor again for a few months. And so they keep on dribbling and only as it gets closer toward the end, it, it's a dance. I mean, it's practically choreographed to the month. So what happens is I learn this and then I learn what you do. And so for those that aren't familiar, so I learned that Carla Joe comes from the crisis management side of the equation. Now, what does that mean? That means that one, the shit's at the fan. Two, you, you have to get it right the first time. And two, time is not on your side. You got to get this shit done like so freaking fast. That's a very specific skill. And if you get good at it, you're like a, you're like a freaking PR sniper. But the thing that was amazing Ooh, I like that. was that, was that PR sniper was, was that Carla Joe, she applied that mentality to everyday PR. Whoa. We're talking game changing. We're talking like, holy shit. So, and so I found that, all right, I'm looking. So I start looking at all these bits and pieces and I'm like, oh, so when you walk in, they already, the elephant in the room is, you know, it's like, who can we tolerate the, the most out of the, 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 you know, out of all these like evil, uh, you know, candidates. Right. And so is there a way to flip that? Is there a way to, to change that? And looking what everyone said, and they were all very cliche, all, all the competitors are very cliche. And so we came out with the factor of like, basically provide that we're going to take a contrarian position. The first presentation slide to their presentation was we hate PR, which immediately melted the ice in the room of like, you know, and, and all of a sudden everyone was like, what, what, what just happened? We took that line that divided your buy your buyers with you. And so you're actually now on the same side of the table saying the industry sucks as it is. And that's why we do what we do. What do you see like with the pandemic and the way people are communicating and all of these disruptors that are coming into the market? How do you see 
things changing or how they need to change in order to up the ante on differentiation and communication between brands? Um, I, I think that a lot of brands saw how vulner, vulnerable they were with, with one change. And let's take the disastrous aspect away from it. Like, oh my God, so many people died. And da, 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 da. Let's take that out of it and just look at what really happened. What really happened was you and I couldn't sit in the same office or restaurant. That's factually all that actually happened business-wise. And when you break it down to that fundamental, you go, wait a second, you're telling me that proximity, my entire business is built on proximity. So now that we've gone over branding, let's move over into marketing with Steve Kahan. Steve is a serial entrepreneur with a proven track record for producing breakthrough revenue growth in brutally competitive marketplaces. Having successfully helped grow seven startup companies from early stage to going public or being sold, resulting in nearly $5 billion in shareholder value. Listen to what Steve says as I interview him right on the heels of his new book being published. The new book called High Velocity Digital Marketing, Silicon Valley Secrets to Create Breakthrough Revenue in Record Time. And Steve talks here about how companies can maximize their marketing impact by adjusting their strategy to better address who their customers are and how they make buying decisions today. And to me, the most important gradient is realizing there's no substitute for hard work. I found that you just have to roll up your sleeves and get your hands dirty. Today, for example, I was called by a a venture capital firm, was asking if I felt that there was room in the market for a company on the low end. And it was a very simple question, but really to answer that question fully, there would be so much hard work ahead of them. And what I found is, is that no great achievements are possible or sustained without hard work and And hard work is the price you'll pay for the success that you desire to achieve. There was a recent McKinsey survey that said that 83% of CEOs said they expect marketing to drive most of their company's growth. Yet, according to the Harvard Business Review, roughly 80% of CEOs are dissatisfied with their marketing results. And so when you look at that, And you look at then the pressure on sales and marketing leaders, a lot of them are overwhelmed by revenue expectations they can't meet. Yeah, I mean, the same old, same old is, for example, going to trade shows, getting those leads to a sales team and having that team follow up and hope that you're going to have a super high velocity go-to-market motion. Some of the same old, same old could even be online. It could be putting average content that doesn't really capture a buyer's imagination and and attention just out and available, even in the sites where those buyers hang out. And think about it. At one, understanding exactly who their buyer is. There are some companies that they'll be like, gee, all we want is product trials. 
well, not everybody's ready to trial your product, right? And that's and that's okay, right? So you've got to have great content that naturally leads to one another across the buyer's journey that actually gets someone to act. And then, of course, being great on Google's because that's how a lot of people are buying these days. Like they're they're doing what we all do. They're doing searches on Google and they see what comes up and you've got to be there and then you've got to be great from that moment on forward. And again, a lot of organizations have not cracked that code and that's why sort of their digital marketing results are not where they want them to be. Coveted keywords, these were the keywords or phrases that were most often searched on. And I always wanted to know where I stood on those, by the way, relative to our two top competitors. So I always knew that, by the way. And then once we got that content, we would expose it online so Google could do its scanning. It had the right keywords and phrases in there. In other words, we're, we, we weren't trying to outsmart Google per se, right? We were just doing good best practice. Of course, our partners loved our content because it made them look like experts as well. And so you have to understand the context. And so privilege access management is part of cybersecurity. And what it is, is every single device, every application, every network, every everything in your infrastructure has a password. Those passwords are known as privileged passwords. If you asked any of those IT admins who were also were responsible for securing the infrastructure that they were administering, or even the CISOs, right, who were creating policy, concerned about compliance, things like that, and you say to them, how many privileged passwords do you have? And 100% of them, literally, I'm not saying not 99%, 100%, had absolutely no idea. And that got huge visibility. It was, we were able to communicate things that nobody else in the world was, and that it fed our webinars, it fed our blogs, it fed our podcasts, like, and so, like, we had a constant stream of news. Like, we managed all of this like we were managing, like we were editors of The New Yorker. We had such a busy calendar that we would manage that. But I viewed that all of this content had to deliver and contribute to lead generation, pipeline, and revenue, as well as our visibility. It wasn't one or the other. It was always both. And that was part of our secret to success. So it depends what you have and what you lack across those stages of the buyer's journey, right? And and so the answer is, is it's really specific to what is the situation for a particular company, but I will tell you this for sure, is that a gap in content in any one of those stages zaps the velocity of any high-velocity digital marketing strategy. And the reason for that is those pieces of content need to naturally lead to one another. And so 
a lot of times people don't think about that. And that's how you string together marketing campaigns. It's how you build partner in a box campaigns for your partners. Each organization will be different based upon where their gap is. But regardless, you've got to be able to have content at each of those stages of the buyer's journey. Otherwise, you're not going to get the results that you seek. The quicker you convert digital content-based leads, which is what we've been talking about, into paying customers, the more successful your business, right? I mean, pretty simple. And that time is money. And the single metric that reveals the most about time and money actually is velocity. And velocity is commonly overlooked. It's rarely managed. And high-velocity digital marketing focuses really, at the end of the day, how fast you're bringing in money. It looks at how quickly you're generating leads, moving them through your pipeline, how much revenue then is produced by customers over a period of time. And so, as a result, having high-velocity plates a huge role in any business's ability to thrive and grow. And and what I've learned is, is all that like, yeah, okay, that sounds pretty simple, but like implementing a high velocity digital marketing program that actually moves prospects through your pipeline and converts them into customers quickly. And now let's talk about the knee plus ultra of why you brand and why you market which is to sell. In this episode, I picked out some key nuggets of my interview with Jesse Woodbury. Jesse is a disruptor in SaaS sales and a host of a successful podcast show called SaaS Sales Players. High-dollar SaaS sales tend to involve at least a half a dozen stakeholders with crazy competition and them being educated thoroughly about the industry. Enter Jesse Woodbury. He created two frameworks that are proprietary that help providers close over seven figures in annual recurring revenue. What's your key, your main ingredient for disruption? So I had a shift a few years ago where I made this realization and it was sort of this this bridge that I crossed that once I crossed it, I, I could never go back to the old way of doing things. And I know it sounds crazy to talk about the old way in an industry like SaaS where everything is new and novel. Tech is always on the forefront. Uh, They're the vanguard in the business world. But I came up in the industry in a world where people were still making cold calls and sending cold emails and doing sort of the traditional sales tactics to try to get pipeline built for their sales operations. And, And what I observed was I needed to shift from being a you know stereotypical salesperson to being a creator and having a creator mindset. And I'll dig into what that means. And I changed my mindset from being, you know, a salesperson to being a partner consultant. And content is sort of the lifeblood of being able to make that transition, right? So being able to think of my prospects, who in many cases are executive level buyers, CEOs, you know, COOs, CTOs, and large companies, being able to think of myself on an equal playing field and consider myself a strategic consultant to those individuals rather than just someone trying to sell a widget to them. What is that mindset? What is that decision that you changed? Absolutely. So the the change was actually, I started approaching all of my sales activities, you know, as a creator, but also started approaching them as 
I need to help, right? I'm not here to sell a product or a service or a tool or a platform. I need to help solve problems. So that is the first we need to educate our market and we need to get the right content in front of the right people. And what will end up happening is people will come to you instead of you having to go knock the door down. You can curate content that's already out there and package it up in a way that your buyers say, wow, you're obviously a thought leader uh, for our industry. We should buy from you because you obviously know what you're talking about. You bring that experience right now in my in my day job and i still have just a cadence where even though i'm i'm deep in the conversations i just set a reminder on my calendar to go and review a relevant article on forbes or something like that harvard business review is one of my favorites find something that is relevant to the last conversation i had with the prospect and just trickle that out over time and what i find is your prospects are never going to go quiet on you if you do this, because again, you're adding this consistent value. You don't want to create noise or clutter for your prospects, but if it's real valuable content that you've read and understood yourself and you can position in a way that is relevant to the current conversations at hand, there's really nothing else you can do that's more powerful than that. What is the status quo? Yeah. So when I came into the business about a decade ago, and I'm in the big scheme of things, still pretty new to SaaS sales, you know, 10 years in isn't that long. And I've have, you know, I've had managers over the years who were 20, 30 years in the technology sales business and where they started, I'll go all the way back to, you know, how things were initially done in tech sales. And that was probably selling something that was on, that was deployed on premise, or in other words, you had to go actually sell hardware or servers on, on premise to a company. And those were usually large multi-million dollar, very complex deals. And, you know, historically the way that that was done was sort of the, uh, what they call the road warrior methodology, which is you're, you're going around, you know, trying to use a Rolodex to set up an on an in-person meeting with an executive. And then, you know, you demo the, the hardware product and you bring it in. It's all this, this very complex process. But what we're finding is that because everything is getting so saturated and because there's 30,000 other SaaS companies doing the exact same playbook, there's really, you know, no difference between myself and the 10 other people that have emailed an executive that day. And, and 10 is a conservative number. I think I've read that, you know, your average CEO, especially in like the Fortune 1000, is probably getting 50 cold outreach emails a day. And, you know, ironically, there's not as many calls going out to those individuals. So I'm still a big advocate of making cold calls, especially if you're you're very strategic about it. And there's a there's some purpose behind that call. And I use a couple of different playbooks myself to, to make sure that that call effective. But the the blasting of you know thousands of emails out to a, an executive buyer every single week, at this point, they're just going in the spam folder. And that executive is not getting any value from a cold email that says, you know, hey, KJ, can I get 15 minutes of your time? You're going to love our demo. Demo of what? What problem yeah, does this solve? Why should I care? Well, yeah, why well, the hell should I care? Like this quantity has missed the quality. Do you have any idea of what that turnover costs? To these companies? I do. And there, there's a lot of thought leaders out there that talk about this topic because there's a, an interesting stat. I don't remember which research body came up with this, but the average tenure for a VP of sales, not even a contributor in a SaaS company is 18 months. That's awful. Think about that. 18 months is not long enough to do anything in a business. So if you're paying a sales rep $200,000 a year and you're getting, you know, a 10x return on that, that's huge, 2 million bucks. And if you if that person leaves after 12 months or 18 months, 
then you know that's there's not only the opportunity cost because now you've got to go replace that person that's going to take time and resources there's fees to to do recruiting but now you're you're losing out on let's just say 2 million dollars in revenue for that year that would have been booked if that rep would have stuck around and been productive it's huge money Talk a little bit more about the disruption and the, mm -hmm. the content creation. I mean, you explained it very simply and very beautifully, right? But how did you get, like, how did you get onto this? What made you start doing this? And how do you go, are you, just, are you looking at the pain point, the real pain points of what you're solving? And then you decided to, I mean, it's an influencer world today, right? It's a PR world. Yeah. You're talking about Forbes, you're talking about all these different, you know, Harvard Business Review, TechCrunch, all this publications where it's third-party credibility and you bring that content to your potential prospects. How'd you start that? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'm at a little bit of an advantage, full disclosure. I started my career in the media world. So before I got into software, I spent some time in you know, working for Gannett, which is one of the largest media companies out there. I know I shared with you previously my background, my, my undergraduate degree was in journalism and mass communication. So part of that degree also, I sort of fused media with business. And I feel like from that, that development, I learned how to write really well. And I learned some of the fundamentals of journalism and, and you know the pyramid style of writing and making things interesting and engaging for a reader. So I'm at a, a slight advantage in that front. I love content. I love writing, producing content, hence the, the, the podcast that I do. So I'm already sort of from the media world. Now, that is not to deter anyone who has a business or a science background or an engineering background from trying to also create content. One of the biggest fears, I'll address one of what probably is the biggest fear for any SaaS seller that's listening who's saying, well, I don't have a media background. And also my prospects are going to call bullshit on me because they know more about their industry than I'm ever going to. They work in it. Yes. But again, kind of back to being a curator. Can you help curate content though that they may have not had a chance to look at? And you also don't ever want to approach your buyers as if you know more about their industry than they do. One piece of advice I'll give anyone out there is find the medium or the platform or the channel that works best for you. Soft call to action seems to work a bit better. You don't want it. You don't want to complicate the, the content by adding a hard, you know, book time with me right now and I'll demo it for you tomorrow. You know, I'm being dramatic here, but that's, again, the old status quo is you got to be aggressive and ask for the time, get 15 minutes tomorrow to show them. We can't wait. You don't want to be too aggressive. You want to almost leave and, and, you know, going back to the example that I shared of, of an open letter to executives and this individual shares that, that letter, the template for that letter, and it's very soft. It's, hey, look, I've written this letter. I would love to have a chance to share some ideas with you, but I'll, I'll leave that up to you. Hey, Mr. or Mrs. Founder, are you writing on Medium or writing blog posts? Are you creating podcast content? Are you going on podcasts and, and acting as a guest? Are you talking about your vision? You're the founder. You need to be the forefront of all of this. If you're trying to, to create a new category or revolutionize a process, you need to be putting yourself out there. And I've been at my share of SaaS companies where the founders were absolutely terrified of putting themselves on a stage, whether that was a podcast or an in-person event or blogging. And it was this huge missed opportunity because a lot of these founders in SaaS are brilliant people. And they come from either you know a technical background or a business background, but they have great ideas, a great vision, but they're afraid to actually get out there and share it fundamentals that can be found in that older way of doing things. And that, that is still something that most reps need to learn. I, I'm definitely not coming on saying that someone should stop making cold calls today or stop sending you know prospecting emails. What I think is important is incorporating this new mindset into it, which is 
how can I, when I call somebody, think of myself as a strategic partner in their business? And that way the call doesn't come across as salesy. It comes across as, hey, wait a minute, this person seems to want to help us. All right, folks, that's a wrap on today's episode of Disruption Interruption. What an incredible roundup of some of the most exciting moments from our episodes that have revolved around disruptors meeting the status quo of branding and marketing head on. Here's a quick recap of the key takeaways from today's episode. Competition is fierce and noisy. The proof is in the dismal fact that the average tenure for a VP of sales in a SaaS company is only 18 months. It's time to look at branding and marketing innovation through the lens of your own business and embrace the lessons shared by our experts. David Breyer challenges us to face the reality that people will not change their thinking based on old news. Keep your finger on the pulse of the solution to your customers' problems and work them into your marketing message to ensure a unique sound which is needed for brands to be noticed. Steve Cahan draws our attention to consider repurposing and packing existing marketing content to transform a SaaS from a cost center to a value center. Jesse Woodbury introduces us to the concept of providing a no-commitment point of entry into your brand's product, being your client's consultant. With my finger on the pulse of these industries, I've had the pleasure of speaking with leaders who have successfully disrupted their respective industries and shared their invaluable expertise with me. Their insights and experiences will give you the confidence to navigate this ever-changing landscape and provide exceptional experiences for your customers. Stay tuned for more exciting episodes of Disruption Interruption, where we will continue to bring you inspiring stories and expert insights. We hope that we've inspired you today to stay ahead of the curve. And until next time, keep disrupting. Ciao for now. Because we live in a highly litigious society with America being one of the top litigious countries in the world, here's our legal disclaimer. This advice is not intended to be a substitute for professional public relations or legal advice. Do not disregard seeking professional legal healthcare or financial advice or delay seeking professional PR or legal advice because of something you have heard here. Contact an attorney to obtain advice on any particular legal issue or problem. Use of this podcast or our website or any of its social media or email links. Do not create an agency client relationship between Joto PR and the user.